Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. As Gary mentioned, I am not Gary Albritton. And so in order to make sure that, you know, we get out of here on time, I, I wanted to do a visual aid. And unfortunately, with the way things are going in our world, I was trying to find this nice, cool thing that's like scientific, and it was going to take a whole three more weeks to get here. And so, as they say, a picture's worth a thousand words. Instead of that visual aid, I just have a few short 50 points to get through this morning, and we'll get out of here real quick. I am Kyle Thompson. I am the College and Engage Minister here at Shiloh, and that engage part is, has to do with our vision, which is the third part, that we are here to engage our neighbors. And Gary just finished up an awesome series called Sex in a Broken World, where he talked about, especially in that last lesson, if y'all were here last week or if you were joining us online, you heard that he shared the, the, the importance of grace and truth in all of this. The importance of grace and truth and how that grace and truth, whenever they meet, things tend to get messy. But more on that in just a minute. When I was growing up, I really loved baseball. I loved baseball so much, and I got to play it from the time I was about five years old all the way up through high school, and even right after high school, I got to play in a cool league. And one of the things that we had going on with baseball was these baseball pants that we wore for the game. And every time I wore those baseball pants, they got extremely dirty, kind of like these. These are not my baseball pants. But my pants got extremely dirty, and there was this thing that we would say about baseball. We'd say, if you didn't get dirty, you didn't play. I could tell you moms hated that phrase. My mom, more than most probably, because she could not stand how dirty they would be. And if you can't get all the dirt out, then you got your kid wearing these pants the next day that are just already dirty before they even start. And so my mom got really into things like grease lightning and Scotch Guard to protect it. She basically became like Billy Mays trying to sell it to every mom on the block. Like, you got to try this stuff. It'll get your pants super white. We don't like messes. Kenzie and I, my, my lovely wife over here, just moved into a new house. And I can tell you if you've ever moved, especially two young people who were single adults living in the same home, now we're moving to another home, you really realize just how much stuff you have. And for the last week and a half or two weeks, Kenzie and I have really been living in the midst of a mess. And I can tell you, we don't really like it. <laughs> we want to do everything we can to make sure that people don't see that mess. A few of our friends have been able to come and see the house, and we don't show them the garage right now. <laughs> we have this lovely two-car garage. It's one of the best selling points for the house, but our cars have barely been in it. We, we had them in there the other night for the hailstorm, and that's been about it. And so if you need boxes, come talk to us after this, because we need to get rid of those. But as I was preparing for this lesson, we were talking about grace and truth. I realized that there is a key thing that we have to realize about messes in this world. And there's really two types of people. There are people who see messes, and then there are people who don't. And if I'm being honest with you, we tend to call these people college roommates. <laughs> At least in my experience, right? Thankfully, I have a lovely wife who sees messes and helps me to see them as well. But those who, who, who seem to see the messes will do anything possible to get rid of it. As soon as they see a mess, they're, they're picking it up, right? 
These are the people that come back through the kitchen and close all the little cabinets that you forgot to close, push the drawers in. And then there are people who don't seem to see those messes. And I'll just tell you, they may never see them. But if they do, it's most likely that they're going to try to ignore it, to, to avoid that mess. And no matter what camp you're in, I think it's safe to say that we just simply do not like messes. How about you? How do you respond when you see a mess in your life? Are you the type of person that has to immediately go and clean it, get rid of it? Or maybe you just move the mess, metaphorically, or some of us literally sweep it under the rug, right? Or if you're like me with my first college car, you let it stack up until you can't touch the brake pedal. And then you have to get rid of it. I know, Mama Tuck, you're looking at me like, no way. It's okay. My truck's much cleaner now. <clears throat> or maybe you get to the point where you simply stop noticing the mess. That mess is just around you all the time and you don't know what to do. Maybe you have a bunch of kids and you just can't seem to handle it. No matter the case, I think it's true to say that people avoid messes across the board. People avoid messes. And there's one person in particular I'm going to pick on this morning. My friend Spencer Jones, he's here. His, his wife and kids are not. I warned him about it, but I didn't tell him what I was going to say. And I will say, because I'm picking on him, everybody be sure to go congratulate him because this past week uh, he actually passed his fifth and final test for becoming a CPA. So let's give it up for Spencer for that. That's incredible. Personally, I think that Spencer takes avoiding messes to the extreme, though. If you ever go with Spencer to eat, let's say at his favorite place called Freddy's, the normal person will go and they'll order something like a burger and their fries, love their fries, their little bitty things, you know, but maybe get the fry sauce and maybe get some custard. And the normal person goes and they'll eat their burger, maybe eat a few fries. Every once in a while, using a napkin or something, just clean off your hands as you go to grab a drink or something. Not Spencer, though. Spencer, as he's sitting there, as he's taking two to three of those little fries, dipping them in some sauce, he'll eat those fries, and then he'll do this to get all the little grease and salt off of his hands so that he can then go, not to grab his cup, not to grab the burger, to go grab more fries. And I look at Spencer every time, I'm like, Spencer, it's the same grease and the same salt that you're touching again. But without fail, every time this, or he grabs a napkin, he has to clean it off. Personally, I have a theory about this. I don't even think that if there was anything on there, I, th I think if there's nothing at all on there, Spencer would still do this after he grabbed food. So maybe we need to adjust our statement a little bit. Maybe we need to say the reality is that people avoid the perception of messes. We don't even like things to appear messy. Because we all know the saying, perception is reality. It's why your mom made you clean your room and make your bed when guests were coming over, even though those guests never went in there. Right? We don't like the perception of a mess. We don't like things to appear messy, especially in the church. Messes in the church setting look a little different, though. It's not about baseball pants or your room or food on your fingers. 
Messes in the church have faces and they have names. They're people. And sadly, we like to avoid the perception of messes, even in the church and even in our relationships. These same relationships which we are tasked to show the love of God in. And that means being full of grace and truth, just like Jesus was. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, going through verse 5, John is telling about Jesus, and this is his whole letter talking about the story of Jesus his entire life. And he starts off in John chapter 1, sounding just like the book of Genesis. If you've never read it, the book of Genesis starts, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God was there. And John starts it in the same way. He says, in the beginning was the Word. He uses Jesus' code name in the, in the New Testament, essentially. He says that in the beginning was the Word. And this is huge. Because John does something incredible for us, where in Genesis we see God the Father and God the Holy Spirit present. We don't actually see in Genesis the mention of Jesus. But John says he's there. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And everything that was created was created through the Word. That's Jesus. John references Jesus by this phrase, the Word, because, and I think this is so cool, through everything in Genesis, the first chapter, we see how God spoke everything we know into existence. Look around you. Look at the people sitting next to you. All of this, God created by speaking words. And John says that it was Jesus who created everything. And then he gets to probably my favorite verse, verse 14. It says this, The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Let's think about that for a second. The creator of the universe becomes like his created. It's like a kid playing with Legos, becoming one of the Legos. It's incredible, right? And he goes on to say this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen Who's this we? This is John and all of the followers of Jesus. They have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus' followers had a front row seat to his life. They traveled together. They lived together. They ate together. Day and night, they were living with one another. Now, I want you to imagine for a second if someone spent three years straight with you, what might they say you're full of? If it's me, I don't really like that idea. <laughs> if you've been with me over the last three months, you'd say I'm full of kombucha. It's a probiotic drink that Kenzie's been getting me to drink, and it's delicious, by the way. I'm kind of addicted to it. But they spent three years with Jesus, Day and night, watching, listening, and learning. And the words that John chooses to describe Jesus, he says that he is full of grace 
and truth. I want to be very clear here. Jesus wasn't just playing a balancing act with those two words. Jesus was the embodiment of full grace and full truth. A full measure of grace and a full measure of truth. But I want us to take a moment this morning to see why it is that they would describe Jesus this way. For starters, Jesus taught about grace and truth. In Luke 15, we have three incredible stories or or parables that Jesus tells in a row that highlight the importance of both grace and truth. It starts with the lost sheep. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. Wouldn't you go and leave the 99 and search for that one? And when you found it, wouldn't you put it on your shoulders and carry it back home and call all your friends and all your neighbors to celebrate with you? And then he says this in verse 7. He says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He tells a similar story called the lost coin. He says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Wouldn't she turn on all the lights, turn over all of the furniture, and search until she found that coin in the house? And when she found it, wouldn't she call her friends and her neighbors over to celebrate that she had found that coin? And then in verse 10 he says, in the same way, I tell you, There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then we get to the story that a lot of us have heard more than maybe any other. And if you haven't, I hope that I can do it justice just by paraphrasing a bit. But it's the story of the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, give me my inheritance. Give me everything that you owe me at the end of your life. I want to take it and I want to go and make my life how I want it. And so he takes the money and he left for a far off country. And scripture said that he wasted all of his wealth in some very terrible ways. Living like the world. And then one day there was a famine in the country he was in. And so this this young man who's taken his father's inheritance for him and he's squandered it. He needs food, and he needs money to get that food. And it says that he found a pig farmer to hire him. And one day as he was feeding these pigs, in verse 16 it says this. It says, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating. That's pretty bad. What's worse, no one gave him anything. Finally, Scripture says that he comes to his senses. He has a change of heart about all this. And he realizes that his father has many servants who are living better off than he is now. And he says, I'm going to go home. Not to be a son, but to beg my father's forgiveness and ask that he would let me simply be a servant of his. And scripture says as the son was walking home, the father sees him from a far way off and he does something that is just shameful in their culture for an older man to do. He runs to him. He grabs him, he embraces him, 
He kisses him. And the son looks at him and he says, Father, I do not deserve to be called your son anymore. Give me a role as one of your servants. I'm not worthy of being your son. And the father looks at him and shakes his head. He calls his servants and says, bring the best robe. Get a ring and put it on his finger. Get sandals on his feet. Go and kill the fattened calf because we are going to celebrate that my son who is lost is now found. There's another son in this story, though, that a lot of us who've grown up in church can relate to, I think. The older son was out in the field at this time, and whenever he came back in, one of the servants filled him in and said, this is what's happened. The older son was so angry that he wouldn't even go in the house. So the, older, or so the father comes and talks to him. When he came, he became angry with his father. And the older son starts to go off on him. He says, how long have I served you faithfully? How long have I obeyed you all these years? And yet this son who took your money and went and wasted it on fruitless living has come back and you, do, you go and you do all these things for him. What's in it for me? And the father says this in verse 31 and 32. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In his teaching, Jesus emphasizes both the truth of God and the grace of God. If somebody is coming to God like the prodigal son, I think it's safe to say that they are seeking truth. The question is, in an effort to share the truth with them, do we use Scripture to show them how far off they truly are? Or do we celebrate them seeking the truth by sharing the grace of God with them? You see, the thing that we struggle with, the reason it gets so messy, is because we tend to emphasize either truth or grace more than the other. I heard it said a long time ago that the Bible is a sword and it's meant to pierce our heart. Let's be sure that we don't use it as a hammer to bash others with. If somebody is returning to God and seeking Him, let's emphasize the full truth of God by the full grace of God to them. Jesus not only taught about it, He also lived grace, and truth. I want to highlight three quick stories of how Jesus lived grace and truth. And these three stories have a lot more in common than just that. One of the key things they have in common is they're all about a woman. And in Jewish culture, women were kind of lesser than, second-class citizens, if you will. Jesus chooses to reveal truth and extend grace to those who are often viewed as not as important. We start with the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, Jesus is on his way through Samaria. 
The Samaritan people, for those of you who may not know, were always at odds with the Jews. They never got along. They hated each other, truly. And so Jesus is passing through this countryside, and it says that it's around noon that he gets tired, and he stops at what's known as Jacob's Well. Jacob's Well is important to both the Jews and the Samaritans because their lineage goes and meets there. And so Jesus stops, and he's sitting at this well, and he sends his followers into town to go get some things that they need. It says that a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And Jesus looks at her and says, can you give me a drink? The woman is quick to point out that he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. She says, who are you to ask me for a drink? And Jesus explains that if she only knew who he truly was, that she'd be asking him for living water and that he would give it to her and that if she drank it, she would never thirst again. As you can imagine, she says, where is this water? Please give it to me. So then Jesus says, go and call your husband and come back. And she replies, I have no husband. And Jesus says this in verse 18, the fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Jesus goes on to reveal to this woman, a very sinful woman, about the kingdom of God. And how one day true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And the Samaritan woman says a beautiful, beautiful statement. She says, I know that the Messiah, the Savior, is coming into the world. When he gets here, he's going to explain all this to us. And this sinful woman, Jesus says these words to in verse 26. It says, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This sinful woman who's had five husbands and the one she's with now isn't even a real husband. Jesus chooses to reveal some incredible truth to. What grace is shown there? She runs back to town saying, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. The next story, one that Gary shared last week, is a woman caught in adultery. In John chapter 8, Jewish leaders had brought this woman out to Jesus and said, Jesus, by law we are to, to stone her, but what do you say? And Jesus, after stooping down on the ground, stands up and he says, you who are without sin, throw the first stone. And he goes back down to the ground and is riding. And it says that one by one, from the oldest down to the youngest, they went away. And so finally, Jesus is left there in the middle of the crowd with this woman, and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them accuse you? And we read in verse 11, no one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Grace and truth. The last story I want to share is about a woman who washes Jesus' feet. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house that's a Jewish leader. 
named Simon. And he comes, and Luke tells us that a sinful woman heard that Jesus was there and brought this jar of alabaster perfume with her. She goes and she stands behind Jesus and is crying. Scripture tells us that she gets down and starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair. And she takes this perfume and puts it on them. And the whole time she is kissing his feet. And so Simon thought to himself this. If Jesus, maybe, oh, there we go. If this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The good thing is Jesus can read people's minds, essentially. (laughs) And so Jesus asks Simon a question in the form of a story. He said, two people owed money to a banker, one $500 and one $50. He said, neither of them could afford to pay it, and so the banker said, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me. And he asked Simon, he says, which of them will love the banker more? Simon answers, the one who owed him the most money. Jesus says, you're right. You're right. He then turns to the woman and begins to compare her and how she's treated him since he entered that house to how Simon has treated him. He says, when I entered this house, you gave me no water for my feet, but yet she has wiped them with her tears and dried them with her hair. When I came in, you gave me no kiss of greeting. But since I've been here, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You gave me no oil for my head, but she has anointed my feet with the finest of perfume. And finally, verse 47. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then a little later in verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus not only taught others about grace and truth, he lived grace and truth. And if I'm being honest, it made everyone uncomfortable. Because where grace and truth meet, it gets messy. I almost wore some steel-toed boots up here this morning because this entire message steps all over my toes. (laughs) Unfortunately, I don't have any steel-toed boots. Uh, But as I read these stories where Jesus showed grace and truth, I'm confronted with my own life. I got to thinking, how have I failed at showing a full measure of grace and a full measure of truth to those around me? When I, was in a, when I was in college, my freshman year, I had a good friend in the drum line at Louisiana Tech University. And this guy was a follower of Jesus, although he didn't go to church with me. He went to some other church across town. And as a good friend, he was a senior, and I was a freshman. He invited me over one time a few months into college where I really didn't know a whole lot of people. I was living off campus. I wasn't really on campus a whole lot. And so my circles were the people I knew at church and the people I knew in the drum line. 
And he invited me over for hamburgers one evening just to hang out, listen to some music, talk about band, and eat some good burgers. And at one point during the evening, our conversation got on to church. We started talking about the differences between our two churches. And in that conversation, I felt it very important to share with him the truth of what I believed. And if I'm being honest, the truth that I believed was a lot of stuff that really Scripture's pretty gray on. And I wasted a lot of time that evening emphasizing how it was important to be right. Unfortunately, I wish I could tell you that our conversation was full of grace and truth and maybe even joy as we discussed Jesus and his bride. But instead, we simply argued our differences about how we do church. That night I wanted so badly for him to see the truth and selfishly for him to acknowledge that the way I worshiped was right that I left no room for the grace of God. I tried to avoid the mess. I wouldn't show grace to someone simply because they didn't follow Jesus exactly the way that I did. I'm not even talking about the sort of things that we just shared in these stories. And sadly, instead of gaining a brother in Christ that night, I essentially lost a friend. Because I didn't like the mess that grace and truth bring. As followers of Jesus, it is crucial that we find peace in the mess of grace and truth. Or to put it this way, our peace in the mess of grace and truth allows others to see Jesus, the one who came full of grace and truth. Let's look back at John for just a moment. John chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It says, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given, or grace upon grace, some versions would say. Next verse. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Have you received his grace? If so, are you living in the grace and truth of Jesus? Or, like me many years ago, are you still living under the law of Moses? Sometimes we get confused on Jesus' invitation. For whatever reason, we start to think that he says, change and then follow me. When the truth is that Jesus said, follow me and you will be changed. Once you've come to Jesus, your life will change, but it will continue to change. We are all challenged every day to surrender to Christ and to allow his grace and his truth to change us from within. The question is, are you still changing? Am I still allowing Jesus to change me, or do I think I've already made it? Do I think I've already reached the goal? Is it evident to others? 
If you are being changed, then it's going to be messy. Earlier I mentioned that in baseball, we had the saying, if you didn't get dirty, you didn't play. I'd like to change that to, if your faith isn't messy, you aren't changing. If your faith doesn't get messy at times, you're not being changed. I do want to give us one next step for this because I don't like to give you just a message to go think about, (laughs) although that's good. I want to challenge us with something. Like me, you probably have a similar story where you failed to fully embrace grace and truth. I have a question. Who might you need to seek forgiveness from? Maybe it's somebody that you didn't show enough grace to. Or maybe it's somebody that you're really close to and you haven't yet shared the truth of Jesus with. For some of you, you may need to seek forgiveness for yourself. Have you forgiven yourself for failing to live up to the call that Jesus has called you to? Maybe you're not a Christian yet and you need to answer the invitation of follow me that Jesus offers. I want to challenge you to seek that forgiveness. But as we do that, there's a key element in all of this. Rather than just focusing on the grace and and trying to be full of both of them because, let's face it, we're not perfect and we're going to mess it up. That's where the mess comes in. Rather than that, I want us to do what the Hebrew writer says in verse 2. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish in and with God. I pray that we as a church never lose sight of where we're headed. Our 2030 vision is this, that by 2030 we want to be a church that exalts Christ, encourages one another, and engages our neighbor. And I just want to share this with you real quick as we close, that coming up on this Saturday, we take another step closer to that vision. Reach Basketball League has 72 kids signed up for it, and we closed the registration. This Saturday, and for the next four Saturdays, we're going to have 72 kids and their families and their friends in our parking lot. What an incredible opportunity for us to live as Jesus lived, to fully embrace grace and truth with them. Imagine if they saw a people who were not only changed, but were still being changed by Christ and that we welcomed others to do the same. And imagine if Shiloh became known as the people who are all about grace and all about truth, not only for ourselves, but for every person we meet. My prayer is this, as we go from here, as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, may we seek to be full of grace and full of truth. If you would bow with me. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for the grace that you show us. Father, help us as a church, as a family, to share in that grace and that truth with one another. Father, forgive us when we are full of too much of one and not the other. Father, help us to look to Jesus, who is not only the perfect teacher, the perfect example, 
but Father who lives in us and is able to work in us, God. Help us to not be avoiding of the messes. Father, help us to find peace in the mess that is found in grace and in truth. Father, we love you. We thank you most of all for Jesus and your Holy Spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.